In the last three chapters of Wilderness Path, we met the setting, which is Penn's Woods, 1730. We met the dwellers of the Hidden Valley, which is Sunrising and his family, including his son, Wandering Deer, which had come back with a message from his vision quest to leave the Hidden Valley. And then we went over to Europe along the Rhine and we met a Mennonite family who took a long and arduous voyage over the ocean to settle on some land that William Penn had uh, invited and sold to the family. And now we find ourselves chapter four, Wilderness Path, a novel by Mary Jane Schneider. We find ourselves in Heidelberg, 1734. Father Johann Jung, rector magnificus of Heidelberg University, sat on a stone bench in the courtyard and watched the long-gowned students hurry to class. The tall walls of the university muffled the city sounds, carts clacking on the cobblestones of the arced bridge across the Nikar River. The market plots full of stalls with bread and wine, goats and sheep. Father Young loved the cloistered university almost as much as he loved teaching the young men preparing for the priesthood. His thoughts were not on his students. They were on yesterday's visit from the archbishop's emissary, a visit that had changed his life. The emissary had taken off his gloves with exquisite precision. As a lingering prelude to the main opus, he had begun a detailed account of his stormy voyage from London to Rotterdam, his boat trip down the Rhine, his rough carriage ride from Mannheim to Heidelberg. Finally, he got to the point. The Archbishop of London has asked for a German priest to go to the colony of William Penn, a place where Catholics have settled without fear. Impressed with his own words, the emissary paused. Father Young, he has chosen you. He pulled out a velvet bag from his pouch. A mission fund from the Archbishop will take care of all your needs. While the emissary chattered on mindlessly, Father Young concealed his surprise with his silence. Will he never stop talking and get out of my office? Finally, and finally, the intruder rose to leave. I'll expect an answer in writing by tomorrow. An answer? The archbishop wants an answer. Father Young thought as he sat in a corner of the courtyard. He is asking me to cross the ocean to Penn's colony. He thought of his beloved Nikar River along whose tree-lined banks he strolled daily. He listened for the faint sounds of the city around him and turned toward the steep hillside and the castle halfway up the mountainside. I love this place. I must consider my responsibilities as rector magnificus of this university. Who will teach my philosophy classes? Don't I mean more to my students than to some unknown settlers in a far-off country? 
My life is with my students, with their questions, their doubts, even their laughter over their exploits in town. To leave all this and become an exile, like the exiles of old? The psalmist had written about exiles. Upon the rivers of Babylon, there we sat and wept when we remembered Sion. On the willows in the midst thereof, we hung up our instruments. A cluster of students passed him and waved. Father Young watched them disappear into the quiet building. He knew why he had been chosen, but he took no comfort in the knowing. He had studied medicine. He was fluent in both German and English, and he was a Jesuit. He obeyed orders. The archbishop would have his answer. He had no choice but to turn his face west. Unkempt, unsteady, Father Johann held on to the rope as he walked down the gangplank onto the street, streets of Philadelphia. He said a prayer of thanksgiving for dry land and for, sat for surviving eight turbulent weeks aboard ship. The crowded quarters and stale bread were bad enough, but he had not known the depth of his fear until the gale began. Three nights of tossing and darkness as pounding waves crashed across the decks. Clutching the sides of his bunk, he had tried to pray, but the roar of the storm drowned out his thoughts. Lamps could not be lit for fear of fire. Buckets flew from one corner of the room to the other. He was struck on the side of the head by his own Bible. He understood the psalmist's fears. This great and wide sea in which are innumerable teeming things. The end of the storm brought a new sound. When the wind subsided, he heard the moans of the dying and the curses of the near dying. Taking his Bible, he went to his fellows, fellow passengers and stopped at each outreached hand. Our God is our refuge and strength, a helper in troubles, which have found us exceedingly. Therefore we will not fear when the earth shall be troubled and the mountains shall be removed into the heart of the sea. Although he was not invited to assist in the burial ceremonies for the dead, he stood beside the living while the captain read a few words over the canvas bags before they were pushed overboard without ceremony. The cry of land was the best answer to prayer he had ever heard. Hungry, dirty, he was in no mood for the welcoming smile of Father Barnabas Gordon, who led him through the city's crowded streets to St. Joseph's Church, set between two sturdy brick homes in Willig Willings Alley. Giving him scant time to eat and sleep, Father Barnabas summoned him to his office. I am delighted that the Archbishop has sent you to minister to the Germans of our faith. Your mission will be to travel through Penn's woods to visit our Catholic families wherever they have settled. He could not control his enthusiasm as he unrolled a parchment. Sweeping his hand over the map, he said, we have bought 120 acres of land for you beyond the Skipback River, 40 miles to the Northwest. 
the Mennonite farmer who sold the land to us has even built you a cabin. His son, Gideon Gaiman, is here. When you are rested, he will take you there. He handed the map to Father Johann. We need you to be our priest in the wilderness. Father Johann was stunned. I am to leave Philadelphia? Surely I thought I would share your work here. But there is no work to share, said Father Barnabas, shrugging. The German Catholics have not settled here. They are farmers and have sought the good soil far beyond the city. He went to the window. See, there is your horse and your young guide waiting for your word. Father Johann followed him to the window. So they want none of my skills, only my ability to ride a horse. I have no choice but to follow young Gideon Gaiman into the woods. Reluctantly, he turned his back on Philadelphia to follow the shy, silent Mennonite boy along the Great Swamp Road, then onto a trail through the forest after three days of riding. They stopped at a small cabin. Gideon assured him that this was the land bought for his Catholic parish. Stiff from the ocean voyage, disappointed at his welcome in Philadelphia, the priest eased himself onto a fallen log and surveyed his new home. Nothing but a rough cabin, surrounded on all sides by trees, with the glimpse of a small stream through the woods. No sounds of students' feet on the cobblestones, no buildings of sturdy stone, no pleasant vistas of the winding river. He was in the middle of nowhere, an ocean away from his real home. His guide walked down to the stream. Look, Father Johann, we are not alone. Your neighbor, Peter Weaver, is working in his field on the far side of the stream. Johann saw a man stretch, look around and stride toward them. Hello, young gayman, he called. Is this the priest? Ask him to join us. Carefully stepping from stone to stone, the priest crossed the stream. With the assurance of men who understood themselves, Peter Weaver and Father Johann Young walked to meet each other. Each was sturdily built. Each was as tall as the other, with shocks of unruly brown hair turning gray. The priest extended his hand. I am Father Johann Young from Heidelberg. I am to be the priest of the German Catholics from the skip back to the Schuylkill. Peter gazed at the man before him. He had never spoken to a priest. I am Peter Weaver. He turned as a woman and child joined him. This is my wife, Elizabeth. We are not of your church, for we are Mennonites. Four years ago, we came here from the village of Oberwesel along the Rhine. He reached down to pick up a handful of dirt. It's only a start, but this is good land, on your side of this stream and on mine. Wiping his hands on his rough breeches, he took the priest's hand. Welcome. We Mennonites call this place New Canaan, a new promised land. He put his arm around the priest. Let us be friends in this wilderness. 
friends here, not enemies, as in the old lands. Father Johan looked into the solemn eyes of the child standing close to her mother. And who is this? Her name is Hannah, Peter said. Forgive her, stare, Father Johan. She drives us to despair with her curiosity. The priest stooped down to look into her face. Hannah, the mother of a prophet, destined for greatness. I am glad you are curious, Hannah, because I want to start a school. Will you be my first pupil? Father Johann Young rode the Indian trails, following the creeks, always responding to a call for help. He came to know Penn's Woods, east to Bethlehem, west to Topahawken, north along the Skokul, um, on both sides of the Blue Mountain. He baptized his family's children, said mass with a single family, blessing just the bread when there was no wine. When they were sick, he made sassafras tea to heal them. He sat with the dying, Catholic, Protestant, non-believer alike, and gave them final words of comfort. He buried their dead. He denied no one the comfort of God's word. Grief was grief. Riding through the mountains, he recited the psalm, I have lifted up my eyes to the mountains, from whence help shall come to me. My help is from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He prayed, I am your servant, Lord, even here. I miss the hills of Heidelberg and my beloved Nikar River. I miss hearing the calls of my students echoing against the university walls. But I am your servant, he added. Thy will be done. Each time Father Johann returned home, Peter welcomed him with a warming pan of coals for his fireplace and cornbread or one of Elizabeth's apple pies for his table. During the winter snows, Peter helped him clear a path to his stable. In summer, they chopped wood for the winter ahead. They built a plank bridge over the stream and met there when they needed to talk. When it was too cold to travel, Father Johann turned his cabin into a school. My school is open to all children, he said, as he told his handful of Catholic and Mennonite neighbors, I will not teach religion. I will teach what the children must learn. They must learn to read and write in German and English. They are in a new land. Sometimes he had 12 children, sometimes five, sometimes only the three weavers, sometimes only Hannah. Knocking softly at the door, she carried her little basket Mother made me too much corn pudding, she would say. The boys had good hunting, or we're all tired of venison stew. Food for his body and food for her mind, a fair and loving exchange. How she learned. Her German alphabet at eight, simple sums at nine. At 10, she read the German Bible, the English alphabet at 11. At 12, she read Poor Richard's Almanac from Philadelphia and gave her father advice on the best time for planting. Curious about the world, Hannah asked Father Johann about his life as a priest in Heidelberg. She insisted on every detail. 
The color of the students' gowns, the sound of the bells. Where did they get the cobblestones for the streets? Little by little on long winter days, he went back to his beloved university through the eyes of his young friend. He told her about his ordination, his studies, his teaching. Her curiosity did not stop there. When he arrived home from each trip, she was waiting for him to learn the names of the villages, the distances to the mountains. Did he see any native people? What were they doing? What did their little girls look like? This young girl had an insatiable appetite to know about the rest of the world. Father Johan was her eyes, her ears, her feet. For a decade, Father Johann kept a record of his baptisms, marriages, and funerals in his precise script while he waited for more Catholic families to arrive in New Canaan. His prayers were answered. Slowly they came. The men of his parish built him a small chapel and a schoolroom. New farms and a new Mennonite meeting house lined the Colebrook Road leading to New Canaan. Mennonite families settled on one side of the stream, Catholics on the other. The priest still taught school, but his pupils were the children of his parish only. The Mennonites had started a school of their own. We cannot have a Catholic priest teach our children, the new settler said. Who knows what Papist ideas he is putting into their heads. When Peter tried to defend Father Johann, his fellow Mennonites turned away. He teaches English. Our children do not need to know English. When she reached her 13th birthday, even Hannah had stopped coming to school. Mama says that I'm too old to go to school, she said. I must learn to be a good Mennonite wife, and I cannot learn that from you. Seeing her carry milk from the spring house, he wanted to call out to her. I met the Indian chief, Shigalami. He wanted to tell her about seeing the great native chief and his translator, Conrad Weiser, on their way to Philadelphia. But he turned away. He said to himself, your mother is right, of course. You must learn to be a good Mennonite wife and you cannot learn that from me. There's something so sacred about holding this book in my hand. As the corners are frayed up and the spine allows me to bend the pages all the way back behind itself. It's a very simple, simply published book. And as I've described in the first reading, the first episode, it is my desire to uh, collect funds to be able to reprint this book. I will admit that I have quite the bias and I hope that some English teacher someday will hear this audio book reading and realize that if they're a teacher in the Oli Valley, the Schuylkill area, Reading, onto the Susquehanna Valley, um, even Philadelphia. This is such a rich book. It has such beautiful, subtle um, prose, poetry to it. 
Um, and every time I read it, even now, new things are popping out to me. And while there is objective richness to this historical fiction, and I think it would be amazing for any young peoples to be reading this and to be doing concurrent um, research about history of their own ancestry um, on these lands and how it's a beautiful subtle way to recognize where the Mennonite and Catholic settlers were coming from, how, how there could be such oversight on their part um, and how there, we won't read it in here, but how there were many people who befriended the natives and lived in harmony with them. Um, and uh, it explores the nuances of, of acknowledging the original people who were here on this land um, without pointing any fingers or, or casting, casting any blame uh, because that's not helpful, but actually holding accountable um, the impact that their collective communal trauma from Europe, how they brought that over with them and just passed it along to the land and to the people of the land. Um, and so not only that, it's just objectively a very well put together history that's been fictionalized and therefore has these nuances that for me personally, some it seems like things just continue to jump out. So earlier I said in the first or second episode about how when I moved back to my hometown area, Boyertown, um, which is where this book was, was written by Mary Jane Schneider, um, the day that my partner and I signed our lease for the farmhouse, we went to the cemetery where his great-great-great-grandfather had been married, um, or, or the church. And then when we got to the church, we found that there's a cemetery there and we looked for gravestones of, of, the, um, of his ancestors. And uh, what I found while I was there was a tombstone that said, Hannah Widener. And it was one of the only, one of the few, if maybe it was, there was only one or two Wideners in that, in that grave plot. Um, and the Hannah Widener one just really called out to me. It really felt poignant. Um, and later I, you know, I have written it into just being that my name is Christiana. And so Christiana and Hannah um, Widener, I am a Widener. I, to my knowledge, there's no ancestry tree that has her in my, um, in my actual lineage. Um, but now this chapter uh, had such a, such a rich experience of Hannah Weaver. And Hannah Weaver being this young woman so curious about the world. And here I am again with such an affinity. Um, that would be me, <laughs> the little girl Hannah Weaver in the book. That would be me. I have such a craving to know everything about the diversity of landscapes, of peoples, of cultures, of, 
of names of things and what those names mean and and what other people are like um and then such a sadness too at at the thought that hannah weaver at one point had to cut off her curiosity and become a good mennonite wife and not only did she have to cut off but as more and more mennonite and catholics came to penn's woods they cut off they cut off from each other they they didn't intermingle they actually started to repeat the own the the warring that was happening in europe um, by continuing to bring biases and hatred and skepticism with them um, and the water the water it was they said the creek on either side of the creek one side was mennonites one side was catholics and it's sad and says something that they used the water as protection from each other. Um, the priest, Johann Jung, he, he said a couple of times, uh, he told us a couple of times about his affinity with the Nekar River and and then in the book is also the Skokul River and the Delaware and eventually the Susquehanna River. Um, and, you know, along the Rhine, there was a river in the valley. And what I know of these people who came to settle here, their ancestry back in their homeland, everyone, whether they knew it or not, everyone had an affinity with the waters, with the waterways, with the rivers, with the tributaries. And, you know, just as the, as the, as the priest kind of, when he reminisces, reminisces of his homeland, the Nikar River is one of the first things that his heart goes to, goes towards. Um, and I know from researching my European ancestry that many of the root peoples, the native or original peoples and their spirituality um, were very akin to the original peoples here where they went to the river and they sought the end of the river and they migrated back and forth to the waters because that is where great spirit lived. Um, in, Europe, in, in old Europe, the river was where Great Mother was uh, was worshipped. The goddess, the the river, the the goddess was was in the river. She was flowing in the river. Um, so I think it's interesting, and I don't know if Mary Jane Schneider knew that bit about about history and ancestry and spirituality. Um, but the book is showing up. It's showing this theme that that the people in their rivers, the people in their waters. Um, they use their waters for protection. They use their waters as a sanctuary. Um, and so I've just been very moved by that as I'm rereading it. Um, okay, so we'll be moving on to chapter five at New Canaan and advancing quite a few years. We'll be jumping forward to 1745. Chapter 5, Wilderness Path, 
a novel by Mary Jane Schneider. Chapter 5 New Canaan, Year 1745. Sitting in his cabin in front of the fire, a blanket wrapped around his shoulders. Father Johann Jung held the letter in his trembling hands. Turning it over and over, he stared at the parchment in his lap, a rare jewel from London, a pearl of great price, crossing the ocean to find him. A letter from Archbishop. He imagined its long journey from the Archbishop's massive desk, protected in a leather box, in the captain's cabin for its sea voyage. Jammed unceremoniously into the post rider's pouch, ignored at the Great Bear Inn at Swamp until his neighbor happened to see it. The innkeeper had seen no significance in the bishop's seal, nor did he care. He simply wanted payment for the postage. A letter from the archbishop except for his annual mission fund, the first word in ten years from London to his priest in Penn's woods. Fingers shaking, Father Johann broke the seal. March 1745. Father Johann Jung, I greet you in the name of Christ and commend you for your years of service to our Lord Jesus in Penn's colony. Your sacrifice is well noted. The news of your travels and your dedication has reached London many times. We thank you for your work. To help you continue your noble mission, I am sending Father Thomas Jaeger, a young German priest newly ordained at Heidelberg University. Let him be your emissary and Christ's through the colony and west to the Susquehanna. First, he will need your wise counsel and your spiritual guidance. Yours in the faith, Jacob Magnificus, Archbishop of London. The letter slipped through his fingers onto the wooden floor. Suddenly, he seemed old and as fragile as the letter. Ah, we are all getting old, Peter, Elizabeth, and I. The Weaver boys, grown to men, Jacob married and with two children, Joshua restless to be married and establish his own family, Hannah becoming a beautiful woman. Soon some man will claim her. He picked up the letter, curiously light, a young priest to ease my burden, someone who will take my place and allow me to go home. The archbishop is right. I am getting old, too stiff for 20-mile rides. But before I return to Heidelberg, I want to finish my dream of building a church, a real church, not just my makeshift wooden chapel. He saw that the letter had been posted six months ago. Perhaps the young German has landed in Philadelphia and will be on my doorstep tomorrow. The archbishop's plan had been set in motion months before his letter arrived in New Canaan. Newly ordained Thomas, Father Thomas Yeager found himself summoned unexpectedly to the office of Father Marcus, the rector of Heidelberg University. Tall, with a face too narrow for his broad shoulders, 
Father Marcus looked like a hawk poised to attack. Then he smiled. Do not worry, Father Thomas. Your philosophy class is over. I have no more examinations for you. He stared at the uncomfortable young man before him. I have a challenge of another kind. Thomas clasped and unclasped his hands in his lap. He was not ready for more challenges. The long examinations, the elaborate ordination ceremonies had left him numb in body and spirit. His new title, Father Jaeger, seemed incongruous and now summoned by the rector himself. Seated behind his ornate desk, Father Marcus stared at the new priest. He questioned his choice. This is a careless, there is a careless air about this young man, hair unkempt, clothes rumpled, but his gray eyes are clear and steady. I have a difficult assignment for you one with possible hardships, the rector continued. Not for an ordinary parish priest, I assure you. Going over to the bookshelf, Father Marcus pulled out a scrolled parchment. The Archbishop of London has asked me to find a young priest to go to the German Catholics in Penn's colony in the Americas. Our families are scattered throughout the colony and have moved ever westward. He opened the map. We have only two parishes, one in Philadelphia and another in a hamlet called New Canaan. Pausing, he looked at Thomas. I chose you because you are from the hills. You told me that you heard God's voice in the woods. You hunt. You are strong. You like answers. Your questions in my philosophy class told me that. Father Marcus sat down. What do you say, Father Thomas? Will you go to Penn's colony? Thomas shifted in his chair. His long legs bumped against the rector's desk. I thought that I would be assigned a small church along the Rhine, then perhaps a transfer to Bonn. He stared at his hands. I would have to leave my home and my family. The rector smiled to himself. He rolled up the parchment. Not an easy decision for a young priest. I have only one thing to offer you. The friendship of a good and true parish priest, Father Johann Jung, a former rector magnificus of this university, also a teacher of philosophy. Maybe you have heard of him. He is one of the saints. Ten years ago, he started the parish in New Canaan. You can stay with him, learn English, explore the woods and the trails that he has traveled before you. He will be your guide. He put the map back on the bookshelf. No matter where the trail leads you, Father Young and New Canaan will always be your home. Someday you may hear the sweet bell on the parish church that he is determined to build. The rector turned. You need not make a decision this moment, young Thomas. Give it some thought, possibly some prayer. Monsignor, may I have seven days to go to Monsirkern and talk with my parents? What a sensible idea. They will be affected by your plans, of course. His mother was in tears when Thomas explained the rector's proposal. 
but to Penn's colony across the ocean, we never may see you again. His father looked too stern, as if to hold back tears he did not want to shed. I expected, as you did, a parish in some village along the Rhine. His younger sister held him tightly, as if to keep him from leaving. Who will be my brother? As Thomas looked at them, his heart was about to break with theirs. I found God first in our woods. It is where he has seemed most real to me. This mission seems to be for me. His face brightened. I'll ask Father Marcus, Marcus if I can be his priest in Penn's colony for five years. Five years, then I will ask to come home. Before he left, his mother fussed with the small things that mothers do to keep from crying. She brushed some lint from his coat and wrapped the fresh cakes she had baked. She thought about Thomas as a young boy. When he and his friend came home from the woods, his clothes streaked with dirt. David and I found a cave, he had said. She recalled the time he had made a cradle out of grapevines for his little sister's doll. She remembered the serious young man telling them that he wanted to be a priest. I feel called by God, he had said. She was awed by the solemn ordination ceremonies and knew then that they had lost him to God. Now he would go with God across the ocean. As she handed him the cakes, he tried to cheer his family with small talk. Five years is not too long a time. His father, mother, and sister stood in the doorway as he left. They watched and watched, even after he was out of sight. Five months, five years, across the ocean, they knew that they would never see him again. With the stench of the ship still clinging to his clothes, Thomas Yeager breathed the clear air of Philadelphia as he walked down the gangplank of the Morton house. He smelled foul. As one of the younger men on board, he had spent his two months' passage emptying slop buckets for his grateful fellow passengers, many ill with dysentery. Then he would heave his meager breakfast over the rail. But before he could leave the ship, he stood patiently in the long line of passengers as each name was recorded. They shivered with the autumn sun, suddenly lost in the clouds. A priest, eh? Then I suppose you can sign your own name, said the official. Obediently, Thomas signed for the official, who then administered the loyalty oath to His Majesty King George and the colony of William Penn. Surveying busy Carpenter's Wharf, Thomas watched workers unload sugar from the Indies. The wharf was lined with ships, almost as far as the eye could see. He saw sailors weaving their way from one inn to another. Listening to the merchants speaking unfamiliar English, he fumbled in his pocket to make sure that his precious piece of paper, his credentials from the archbishop, was still there. He had to find St. Joseph's Church. Where was it? Grabbing his traveling pouch, he turned away from the wharf and came face to face with a well-dressed man riding on a slate, a man of some knowledge, he decided, 
Approaching him hesitantly, Thomas began. Bit, please, Willings Alley. Looking at Thomas sharply, the man pointed that way. Danka. Thomas headed in the direction of the unfriendly finger. Jostled by carpenters and bricklayers, dodging stray dogs and pigs, he passed rows of shops selling guns, watches, hats, books. He heard the squeal of animals from nearby slaughterhouses. He was surprised when he turned the corner and found himself facing a market house filled with strings of dried apples, fat rolls of cheese, bread of every size and shape. He needed to hurry, for although it was early in the day, it looked like the stalls were closing. He held out his German coin for a loaf of bread, a small miracle. A smiling woman took it and said, Danke. First he took a bite of bread. Then he asked directions to the church. A second miracle. He received the answer in his own language. Unshaven, unwashed, Father Thomas Yeager knocked at the door of St. Joseph's Church. A surprised priest greeted him. Where have you been? We've been expecting you for a month. Not waiting for an answer, he hurried on. We must get out of the city as quickly as possible. An outbreak of smallpox has just been discovered here. I was heading to Germantown, seven miles to the northwest. He pointed toward the stable. Let's go now. When we get there, we'll buy you a horse and find an inn where you can take a bath. The road was crowded with wagons of the Germantown merchants who were heading back to the safety of their own country town. The heavy wagons slowed the pace of those fleeing on horseback. As Thomas heard the shouts and cries and even curses in his familiar language, he began to relax. He saw farmers' fields. He saw trees he recognized. Picking their way through the jostling wagons, Father Gordon turned to Thomas. We're almost there. As they came round a bend in the road, the line of travelers came to a near halt. Everyone was staring down a country lane at a gathering of dark-skinned men. Heads shaved, faces painted. Some were sitting quietly on the ground around an open fire. Others were singing and dancing. The savages, said Father Gordon, they insist on coming to visit Governor Logan at Stenton every year. They hold this disgraceful show simply because they sold their land to Penn and his heirs. He waved his arm angrily, as if to dismiss them. They won't work. All they want is rum, and they become roaring drunk the minute they get it. It destroys them. They become worthless. Thomas stared. So these were the natives. As he watched, a young Indian added a log to the fire and turned toward him. Their eyes met, wary, questioning. His eyes are like mine, Thomas thought. What makes one of us a savage and the other a priest? And as I said back in chapter four, this is just such a rich book. Whether students be in Pennsylvania in the southeast, you know, kind of quadrant of Pennsylvania, 
or or other areas um, of where you know Maryland, Delaware, where where um, the Americas were first settled. Um, chapter five ends with a beautiful question and a beautiful setup to bring people back to um, just the humanity of of both parties and how some people felt such a kindredness and questioned questioned the differences that were being slammed upon their minds by their fellows who were introducing them after a traumatic ship ship ride um, two months which uh, I've read other accounts of being on those ships from Europe to the Americas um, yeah, and just the, the humanness of your fellow man kind of coming on to you saying, like, you know, telling you that they're savages and that, you know, this is how they are, but then having an internal dialogue of greater truth, but also being still pretty warped by the trauma of, of the, the boat, the ship, um, and from... <laughs> the 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 years of collective trauma in Europe of the wars um and the the religious kind of disputes so yeah i think it's it's worth you know a great class dialogue or even you know even a small group discussion if you're not if you know uh, i keep coming back to the fact that young people this would be great for young people to read and have and have a English teacher or a counselor or even someone from the community help to discuss some of the the rich themes that come up um, and maybe even like a local historical society to prompt further uh, congruent research of of these early times um, locally of these early times too because we get we get this history in schools but not necessarily the local details and the local details are where I believe there's so much restoration and reconciliation available um so yeah what is the difference between and why do they call him a savage what makes him different from me a priest uh why does he get the label savage and why do I get the label priest when I'm I look in his eyes we are the same we have the same eyes. And the fact that Mary Jane Schneider used eyes and not just I looked at his face or I looked at his physique or um, I looked at what he was doing, I think she was very much pointing to Tom, uh, Father Yeager looked in his eyes. He looked into the portal of truth. You know, they, well, I don't even know what the colloquial phrases um the eyes the eyes are the window to the soul <laughs> that's what it is the eyes are the window to the soul um you know I believe possibly Mary Jane Schneider uh MJ she was she was referencing that this this priest came and saw into the this this the soul of this quote savage this other human being and they had a connection, and he could see that they held the same truth. Thomas Yeager found God in the woods. That's where he met his calling. 
um, and there is there is a truth that this young native man, original to the Americas, held with Father Jaeger. Um, and then there's all these cultural civilization words that got that get tacked onto them, and muddy the the truth of of spirituality and nature and humanness and what it means to be human and the 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 human experience we can let all of the other things melt away you know they he could have in in that connection that connection would be fostered which we will see that there are some connections like this that are fostered between the people original to the land and some of the settlers um when that connection is made on such a deep grounds of human truth, um, all the other experiences and labels really just melt away. They don't matter. They're, they're, they're kind of just flapping in the wind. Um, and so anyways, I find that, I find all of that material a great springboard for group discussion um, or for young folks to do a little bit of self-discovery um, ancestry discovery and help 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 everyone come to terms with kind of like the original sin of quote white settlers um, you know because then white settlers went on to continue practicing slavery um, of of each other and of um, using the the uh, it, across Atlantic slave trade as a means to, to, to propagate their practice of slavery. And so, yeah, like, uh, people of white heritage, and, you know, white is not even a heritage, but people with white skin um, have, have you know, I should say I, me, having white skin, I have had a journey of having to reconcile with myself and my ancestors and come to terms with what it means for me and how I'm going to carry and posture myself as a person with white skin because, you know, there's a lot of anger and hatred and, you know, appropriately so, uh, still occurring today because we didn't come back to the basics, back at the roots of where it all started. We all got caught up in and followed along with calling each other names even between Mennonite and Catholic and and writing writing the original people off as savages Mennonites and Catholics couldn't even get along how in the world how in the world were we thinking that you know our ancestors were going to be able to get along in community with someone even more different in their spirituality than the fine differences between Mennonite and Catholicism. You know, but these are the roots. These are the roots. These are some of the roots that we can, together with young people, or together with ourselves, together in groups of all different ages, because all different ages bring a different perspective and experience of this um, aspect of humanity that in the United States especially is has been a hot topic um, these are the roots that we can learn from and that we can help to reconcile inside of ourselves 
around some of the feelings that we might still be holding on to in regards to the wrongdoings of our ancestors um, and how we can move forward in a way that's more whole and a way that comes into contact with more of that truth in the eyes that Thomas Yeager, or Father Yeager, uh, sees in the young man putting the, the log on the fire. So that's, that's all that I have in my reflections for that chapter is pretty spontaneous and, um, you know, not something that has had come up before, but I just started seeing that and feeling that as I was reading it. Uh, I just would like to remind listeners that, um, I'm not able to monetize yet on this platform, but you can go and visit my Patreon. Patreon is P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com, backslash loved by the water. Um, I too have an affinity with um, rivers and, and, and bodies of water. And so patreon.com, backslash loved by the water. I have I have lots on there actually if you if you enjoy listening to my voice um, my partner and I are doing a podcast um, I I I catch simple melodies and I write them down and and share them on my patreon um, and I also have another project I'm working on about um, moon phases and women's bleeding cycles called moonlit mind and that's a that's an art project I'm working on. Um, but if you join my Patreon, that helps me raise funds um, that are you know I'm trying to raise extra money um, that I don't have personally. That I'm hoping the community of listeners that are enjoying this audiobook and loving it as much as I do um, that I'll be able to um, publish some more of Mary Jane Schneider's books that are out of publish um there's you know they they could be turned into like digital books and that is an option that costs money as well um but like i said there's something really special about holding a book in your hands and having your eyes read and go across a flat um matte page versus a um a backlit screen uh, so I'm a real advocate for the the printing and publishing of books, uh, especially especially this one and some of her other works. So thank you for listening and thank you for checking out my Patreon, patreon.com backslash loved by the water, L-O-V-E-D, by the water. And until we are with each other again for chapter six, uh, enjoy, enjoy your perusings.